it's difficult to go back into a series when we've had a two-week delay. I want to make a brief review of what we've learned so far to refresh your memories and then go into a further consideration this morning of the subject of prayer. The first Sunday, which was three weeks ago that I preached to you on prayer, my purpose was to excite you about what prayer had accomplished in the lives of other people. You need not wonder why we have the Old Testament and all of the lessons and stories and historical events that are recorded there. The Bible in the New Testament tells us why that's all there. That you might have hope. Now, do you know how the Bible defines hope? We sometimes define hope as a maybe waiting for something that could happen. The Bible says hope is patiently waiting for something that will happen. That's a big difference between man's concept of hope and God's concept of hope. And those Old Testament lessons were given to encourage and increase and provoke your hope so that you might have hope in prayer. Now, faith and hope work together. If you, in hoping, are patiently waiting for something, that is faith. You are trusting that God will do what He has said. So faith and hope are very closely related. And that come, an increase of that comes from the Word of God as we read, So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And that Word of God is simple stories like recounting Elijah at Mount Carmel. Simple stories like recounting Hannah when she begged God for a son. Simple stories like Jacob wrestling with the Lord one night. Believe you me, when I read Genesis chapter 32 and think about Jacob wrestling with the Lord, it increases my faith and hope, and it makes me want to wrestle. What does it do to you? Did it accomplish that three weeks ago? Do you want to become a champion wrestler? Now, wrestling's not very big in the south, in, your, in our high schools. It is up north. But I'm talking about wrestling of a completely different sort. And that is wrestling with God. And remember what the reward was for that wrestling match that took place one night between Jacob and the Lord? A new name for Jacob. Instead of being called Jacob, he was to be called Israel. Because he was a prince and had power with God. He had prevailed with the Lord. What a reward! You want a trophy to sit and rust on your shelf? Or do you want the testimony of your prayer life? That individual has power with God. What a goal for all of us. Through prayer, we can have a tremendous impact on our families. You worried about your children? Then you better learn how to pray. Samuel turned out rather well, didn't he? His mother wasn't even around from the year five onward. He turned out well anyway, didn't he? Why? He had one praying mother, didn't he? That's right. And that's a Bible example. You worried about your spouse? Pray for your spouse. You can accomplish great things through prayer in your families. How about your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your uncles, your aunts? You wish to God that things could be done in their lives? Pray. What is the last sentence of James 5.16 that you all are supposed to know? The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. 
You can accomplish much in your families. You can accomplish much in our nation. You want to talk about turning a nation around? Restoring a nation? It comes through prayer long before it's going to come through our marches on Washington, D.C. We can have an influence in our nation. Even two or three of us can have an influence in our nation. But friends, just dropping the words, Help America, O God, while we thank Him for our roast beef supper is not effectual, fervent prayer. Now, it doesn't mean you've got to pray for three hours about America, but we've described some of the aspects of fervent prayer, and God can change our nation through our praying. Your health, our church, evangelism, your job, wisdom, prosperity, all of those things can be affected through prayer. Remember, the reason I'm teaching on prayer is because the disciples came to Jesus Christ one time when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Prayer must be taught. Prayer does not come naturally. Not effectual, fervent prayer. Why, yes, the ungodly even pray. Their prayers are not heard. All religions have some form of prayer, but that's not the prayer we're talking about. We're talking about the effectual, fervent prayer of righteous men, and that must be taught. And that's why we're going through this study carefully. Oh, there's uh, so much I want to say in the way of review. I wish I could preach that first, those first four sermons all over again. To excite your hearts to the subject of prayer, because if you're not motivated, my instruction will fall on dead lives. You need to be brought to life in believing that prayer can accomplish things. Then you'll put into practice what I'm teaching. Otherwise... You're going to say, well, that was all nice, and you'll go on living and praying or living and not praying the way you always have. I pray, God, you'll be motivated to prayer. Remember all the examples we covered. Remember? All those examples, whether it was Jacob wrestling or whether it was Samson with his final prayer in the temple of the Philistines or whether it was Elijah praying that it would not rain. It did not rain for three and a half years. And remember, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. Now there's a, an example of prayer that ought to encourage each one of us. How about the promises of prayer that I reviewed? Where God promised us to give us our requests. He wants to do that for us like a father wants to please his son. And he says, I can do it a lot better than you can do it towards your sons. Remember those promises of prayer. Remember the promise of prayer that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Do you read the Bible and get a verse like that and look at every word? I, I find it amazing. Every little word. All. Exceeding abundantly. All that we can ask. Anything you can possibly verbalize, God can do better. Think. Anything you can possibly consider mentally, God can do better. He's able. And the next verse goes on to describe his, the, the context there describes his great love for us. And that love is he wants to do those things for us if we'll pray the way we ought to. You say, well, why does he make us pray? He wants to see our faith in exercise. How many times do you just dump on your children everything? Aren't there things you know they want, 
You know you're able to provide, you want to provide it, but you wait for them to ask. Ever do that? I do it. I'm sure you do it if you'll stop and think about it. You want them to ask. Why do you want them to ask? It shows that they know where it's coming from. It shows they're dependent on you. It shows them humble enough to ask for it. And God wants to see all of that in us. Two weeks ago, we covered the subject of effectual prayer. That is, those who do the praying. And you need to meet certain qualifications. Remember, you must pray in the Holy Ghost. Remember, you must pray in the truth. Remember, you must pray as a righteous man. If you have sin in your life, forget it. It's all over. The Bible's this plain. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. He won't hear you if you have sin in your life. If you're not worshiping God in the truth, He'll not hear you. God is nigh unto all them that call upon Him in truth is what the Word of God teaches us. Prayer must be made by those whose sins are confessed. You must confess your sins in order for God to hear your prayers. And then the fifth point I made under the subject of prayer was that God will deal with you to the same degree and in the same way that you deal with others. And that, to me, was a very powerful point. And I made it last Sunday, two weeks ago, Sunday morning, and reviewed it again during the evening service. If you are judgmental and critical of others, God has a word for you. He will measure you the same way. He'll be judgmental. He'll be critical. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 2 tells us, with what measure ye meet, that is, the measuring stick you use to measure other people, is the measuring stick God will use on you. If you're merciful, if you're gracious, God will be merciful and gracious with you. If you pity those who don't know better, if you pity those who make a little offense against you, if you pity your children for their tender years and ignorance, God will pity you. But you have to show it first. And that is an important point about prayer. Now, I don't do that simply to scare you. I do that to provoke you to thinking. Throughout the day, when you are confronted with a child who's disobeyed, and you've had a bad day so far, how are you going to react? Are you going to take out your frustration on that child? Or are you going to show some, show some pity and some mercy? If you don't show the pity and mercy, God won't show it to you either. And you'll get to your knees like I pointed out, and you'll beg God for mercy about the sins in your life. You'll be under great conviction and fear and torment for your sins, and God will leave you in that state because you didn't show mercy to those that you had an opportunity to show mercy to. Remember, the Lord's Prayer says, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. If someone sins against you, and I'm not talking about trying to murder you. I'm not talking about great crimes like that. I'm talking about some Sunday morning they didn't say hello with a great big smile on their face. They didn't make you the center of their attention that morning. So you get offended. There you are. You're not forgiving men their little transgressions against you. God will remember every little transgression you've offended against Him. Does that sober you? Does that give you a strong motive 
for watching your daily behavior? I pray that it will. That's why I gave it. And I want to thank several of you. Two weeks ago after the evening service, a couple of you and then uh, in telephone conversations and letters have subsequently said that you appreciated that point. And I am glad you took it that way. That is a hard point, that as you deal with others, God will deal with you. Your temperament, and to the degree you allow your temperament to control you, is the degree to which you'll have power in your prayer life. And I appreciate those of you who understood that and were appreciative of that particular comment. That is an important point. As far as the subject of prayer is concerned, you know about walking in the Spirit. You know about walking in the truth. You know about walking righteously. And you know about confessing your sins. But I want to leave with you the importance of dealing with others in the way you would have God deal with you. Two weeks ago, Sunday evening, we dealt with the attitude of effectual prayer. We began the attitude of effectual prayer. With what attitude should we go to the Lord in prayer? How should we be thinking when we pray? If you want to wrestle with God and prevail, we need to look at the Word of God and see what our attitude should be. The first point we made is those that delight in the Lord shall receive the desires of their heart. Do you delight in the God of the Bible? Do you get excited about Him? Do you glory in Him? Do you triumph in His works? Are you glad? Do you consider the things of God sweet to your taste? Do you speak of them to others? Do you boast to others? Do you rejoice with others? If you do that, God wants to give you the desires of your heart. If you don't have the time for Him, nor the interest, nor the love to do those things, He will reward you accordingly, and He'll withhold His goodness. God is a supremely jealous being. The Bible tells us in Exodus 34, in verse 14, His name is Jealous, capital J. He wants all the attention and all the glorying that's done in this world. That's why 1 Corinthians 1.31 says, Therefore let him that glorieth glory in the Lord. He wants us glorying in Him. That was attitude point number one. Point number two of an, a proper attitude is prayer must be fervent. When you pray, you must pray with great earnestness as Jesus Christ prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane when, he sh when His sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood. Now that's earnest praying. Do you pray that way? I mean, when you're wrestling with God, are you concentrating on God? Are you begging Him and pleading with all that you can muster in your soul? Or has prayer become a ritual, a mechanical routine that you go through? Prayer must be fervent. Remember, it's the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much. The Bible tells us, Ask, and ye shall receive. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be open unto you. But another place in Scripture tells us that you better seek with your whole heart if you're going to find. Don't just think you can do a little seeking. You need to seek with your whole heart when you pray. That's fervent prayer. The third point is we ought to pray boldly. Do you come to God with great boldness in prayer? Remember Abraham's boldness in begging God for to spare Sodom and Gomorrah? He started out by saying, Lord, if there are 50 righteous men in Sodom, you can't destroy Sodom because you're the judge of all the earth and shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You'll not destroy the righteous with the wicked, Lord. Doesn't that sound bold to you? And he starts out with 50, and the Lord says, okay, if there's 50 righteous men in Sodom, I'll not destroy it. 
And then Abraham says, what about 45? For 45. What about 40? Okay, I'll do it for 40. Abraham is getting nervous, but he keeps going. How about 30? I'll spare it for 30. 20! I'll spare it for 20. Abraham says, well, I've blown it now. I'll blow it one more time. How about for 10? And God said, for 10 righteous men, I'll spare the city of Sodom. But there were not 10 righteous men there. But notice the boldness. And the point I wanted to leave with you about boldness is when you go to God in prayer, yes, it is good to confess our sins, but yes, it is better to remember that Jesus Christ has paid for those sins. That's why Hebrews 10 and verse 22, I believe it is, tell us, therefore let us come with boldness unto the throne of grace to obtain help in time of need. And that boldness there in Hebrews chapter 10 and Hebrews chapter 4 is based on this fact. Our sins have been put away. When you pray to God, you need to remember God cannot remember legally that you have a sin. And come with that boldness. It's that boldness that gets places with God and He commands us to come with that boldness. To come with less than that type of boldness is to show by your actions and attitude you don't believe Christ paid for your sins completely. And that you've got to pay for them through some form of penance or repentance. No, you confess them and forget them. How long did it take God to forgive David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba? I love 2 Samuel 11 for this particular point. The prophet came in and said to David, Thou art the man. You've sinned against God. David said, I have sinned. The prophet said, God has forgiven you. Now, how long does that take? Was that a bad sin? Yes. Had he lived in that sin for some time? Nine months. How long did it take? About three seconds. But as soon as it's over, it's over. You come with boldness and realize that God has paid for your sins. Another attitude of prayer is persistence in prayer. Oh, this is, if there's one single important point I want you to remember about prayer and the attitude of prayer, it's persistence. Are you willing, are you able to stay and pray? Continue in prayer, the Savior said. Watch and pray, the Savior said. Continue in prayer, the Apostle Paul said. Pray without ceasing, Paul said. Are you able to do that? Or when you pray three times and God hasn't answered your request, you give up and come up with a new request. I don't need to ask you. I know that's what you do. Why? Because I'm tempted with the same behavior. Why do we have no persistence? Because we're such fickle creatures with great impatience especially in our generation. You know, if we were all farmers 200 years ago, we'd have some patience. Do you know why? Because 200 years ago, you started in spring and you didn't know what you were going to have until fall. Now we flip on the television in 60 minutes, they can develop a crime and solve a crime and punish the evildoers all in 60 minutes with 20 minutes of advertising. Not bad, is it? We're geared to think in such short terms. You know, those farmers would beg God for months. They'd plant the seed. God, bring it forth. They'd come up. God, save us from hail. God, send us rain. And for months, they would develop their persistence in prayer. Us? You know, if we can hold out for three requests, three times about the same subject, we consider ourselves great warriors. 
of prayer. Listen, with warriors like that, we better hope there's not a war. Persistence in prayer. Remember those examples of the unjust judge? The parable is given in Scripture of an unjust judge and a widow who needed a judge to defend her. And he said, I don't fear God or man. I'm not going to help this widow. But the widow bugged him and kept bugging him until finally he said to get this old nag off my back, I'm going to help her. And you know why Jesus told that story? He said, you keep bugging me. Remember the story of the woman from Cyrene? The woman who came and begged Jesus for her daughter. Jesus ignored her. Ignored her, turned her back on her. She kept begging the Lord. Then the Lord said, "It's I've come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Ignoring her, she wasn't an Israelite. She kept begging anyway. Then he said to her, It's not meat to give the children's bread to dogs. She said, But Lord, how about a crumb of that bread? He said, I've not seen such great faith. Your faith will get you your request. And from that very hour, her daughter, was he- her daughter was healed. Notice the persistence. How about the story of the man who's in bed with his children? And a friend comes to the door and says, I've, I've had some company arrive at a late hour, and I need some food for them. I didn't have any food in the shelf. The Lord said that because he's a friend, that's not enough to get a man out of bed. But because of his importunity, and if you look up the word importunity... It means bothersome, troubling through solicitation. I mean, the guy is not going to leave the door. You know, he just keeps beating on it. And finally, you say, okay, I'll get up and give him some bread and get rid of this nuisance. That's what the word importunity means. And Jesus said, pray in that manner. You pray until I can't put up with it any longer, and I'll give you your petitions. You say, I can't handle it. I can't pray that long. God will never require out of you persistence that you are unable to provide. Look at it this way. And this, this to me, answers the whole thing of persistence. Could God have escaped from Jacob? But he didn't, did he? Now, think about that for a minute. When Jacob was wrestling with God, God said to Jacob, Let me go. Jacob said, I will not until you give me a blessing. Could God have extricated himself from that hammerlock that Jacob had on him? Sure he could have, but he didn't. He reduced his power, or he reduced the availability of his power to that of Jacob's power. Do you understand what I'm saying? And that's what God does with his persistence, with his need for persistence. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He does not demand out of you infinite persistence. He demands just enough to test your patience. And you know what that means? You are going to be getting frustrated toward the end of your praying. That's what it means. If you weren't getting frustrated toward the end of your praying, what kind of persistence is that? He wouldn't really be trying your persistence. Keep that in mind. That, to me, is comforting. I'll get frustrated early. (laughs) You may joke. I'm not joking. You read the Psalms and you read men who prayed, and in their prayers you can hear it. 
I mean, they're begging God to hear. Now, why in the world would you ask God to hear? You know He hears. You're showing, you're, listen, wake up. The Psalms talk about God waking up. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Lift up your ears. Hear me. Show your fervency through persistence. Now, this morning, let's consider a few new points of the proper attitude of prayer. The next thing we want to cover, after having covered those four points, is pray with the understanding. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15, 1 Corinthians 14, 15, I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding. Now, two weeks ago in Sunday morning, I said, we must pray in the Spirit. That's what Jude said in Jude about verse 19, pray in the Holy Ghost. That's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, pray in the Holy Spirit. When we pray, we must pray with the understanding. And Paul said it right here in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding. The problem at Corinth was all these Corinthians had a great deal of the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues frequently. They had the gift of prophecy. They had the gift of the interpretation of tongues. But that wasn't important to Paul relative to praying with the understanding. You know, people who say they speak in tongues, they say they pray in tongues, and oh, they go on about how their prayer is so wonderful. But you didn't know, you didn't know what they were praying about, and neither did they know what they were praying about. And Paul says, I want you to pray with the understanding. Now, I don't know of too many of you who've come to me and said you prayed this past week in tongues. I hope not very many of you come to me and tell me that you prayed in tongues this past week. Because the first question I'm going to ask is, what tongue was it? Italian? French? Spanish? And I hope you know. And I hope you know that language. Or else you will have prayed without the understanding. And you will have not have prayed effectually. I don't care how good you felt. And I don't care how many goosebumps you had on your back. Prayer must be done with the understanding. 1 Corinthians 14, 15 tells us that. Well, how does that verse apply to us? Have you ever heard of parents who taught their children <coughs> prayers to be memorized? And they'd kneel down beside their beds. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray, dear Lord, my soul to keep or something that effect. I don't even know it. Thanks be to God. Don't you teach your children to memorize prayers? You know what you do when you memorize a prayer? Why don't you pray the rosary? That would be more scriptural. It would be more scriptural to pray the rosary than to pray that little prayer, Lord, now I lay me down to sleep. Why? The rosary, at least 90% of it is scriptural. The 10% of it is scriptural when you pray the Lord's Prayer. Lord, now I lay me down to sleep can't be found anywhere in the Word of God. The point I'm trying to make is both of them are very unscriptural. When you memorize a prayer, yes, you may pray it with the understanding, but that's rare. When you have something memorized, you usually pray it without the understanding. Guard against memorized prayers. How often do you go meet someone and have memorized all the words that you're going to say and you reel them off like they came out of a dictionary? You don't talk to me that way. I'd shake you awake. We don't talk to each other that way. If you were to meet with President Reagan and he had you sitting there in his Oval Office 
Would you pull out your script? No, you wouldn't need your script because you have it memorized. Would you sit there and stare at his face and quote off all the words that you'd memorized? Asking for him to do something for you? Or would you have a prepared outline of points you want to make and appeal to him impromptu or extemporaneously? Sure you would. That's how you deal with men. And that's how God is to be dealt with. We are to pray with the understanding, so avoid memorized prayers. Avoid word and phrase repetition. Listen to men pray. You can learn a lot about prayer by listening to men pray. That's why we all pray in this congregation. I want to remind some of you that excessive repetition of phrases or words smacks of a lack of understanding. How many of you speak to me and you end every sentence with my name? But how many people pray, O oh Lord, Lord, O oh Lord, Lord? I believe I've mentioned this once before. I remember as a child being in a prayer meeting, and my brother and I, we weren't the most reverent little boys. We, we were sitting across from each other in a prayer meeting, and we were counting the number of times a certain man said, Lord. Have I told you the number? 148 times. We were so proud of ourselves for keeping track of that. 148 times he said, Lord, in one prayer. Now, when was the last time you heard someone talk to another human being that way? You don't just keep quoting the name excessively. Now, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I believe it was, the prayer of David to God, and he said the Lord God seven times in ten verses. There's some repetition. But you be careful with repetition of words, or it sounds like you're not praying with your understanding because you don't speak that way to others. Let's guard against trite expressions also. Let us pray with our understanding. And the best way to pray is to use Scripture as much as you can and to speak to God as intelligently as you possibly can. Pray with the understanding as Paul teaches us here. We need to guard against praying in our attitudes to be seen of men. I know that all of you are capable of praying to be seen of men. Because Jesus Christ said we ought to guard against the leaven of the Pharisees. And part of that leaven is to pray before men. It may not even be here. When I ask for volunteers to pray in the evening service, you better make sure you are not volunteering to be seen of men. I don't believe you are. I believe all things. And I hope all things. I hope you're not doing that. But guard against that. There is a natural tendency in our hearts to want to pray to be seen of men as some spiritual giant because we can stand and pray when the pastor asks for volunteers. Look at Matthew chapter 6 with me on this point of praying to be seen of men. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. Here is instruction on prayer. And when thou prayest, here's the Savior teaching us something about prayer. And when thou prayest, Thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. This is Matthew 6, 5. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Here are men who love to pray to be seen of men. You make sure in your life that you prefer praying in private. I'm going to get to that in a minute prefer praying in private. If you prefer praying in public, I question your motive. It's a Pharisee who loves to pray in public. 
and they have their reward. That is, they have their answer. What is it? Other men saw them. That's all they get from their prayers. Other men get to see them. They have their reward. But look at verse 6. But thou, and here's instruction to us, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Uh, What's effectual prayer? It's prayer that gets the reward. How do you pray effectually? In a closet. Now let's get specific. Do you like planning prayers at home where your spouse will walk in and find you praying? Do you like planning prayers at home where your children will find you praying? Do you like praying at home only for family devotions where your children can see what a prayer warrior you are? Now I raise those examples just to trigger your memories and to think a little bit about how you pray. Jesus wants us to sneak somewhere. This isn't an absolute requirement for every prayer. We know that from other examples. But our general attitude for prayer ought to be doing it in secret, not to be seen of men, and then we'll get rewarded from God, which seeth in secret. But if you have any interest in putting on a show for family, friends, pastor, or congregation, you have your reward. But your praying won't be effectual. They have their reward, the Savior said. But it's not the reward of answered prayers. Remember, it's the Pharisee who loves to stand and make long prayers for a pretense. Matthew 23 and verse 14. Remember the public and the Pharisee who prayed at one time? The Pharisee stood in the street corner and just cut loose in front of everyone. And then the publican bowed his head, smote his breast, and prayed that God be merciful to me, a sinner. Short, not pretentious. And Jesus Christ said that man went down to his house justified. He had his reward from his Father in heaven. And the Pharisee had his reward too. He was seen. Big deal. What difference does it make if men see you pray? What counts is, does God hear? You pray and he will not hear if you pray to be seen of men. Another aspect of the proper attitude for prayer is to pray submissive to the will of God. That is to pray not demanding your will in the matter. Sometimes we think we have things figured out well. And we pray God asking him for something specific, such as in the book of James chapter 4. We're going to go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. I know that a couple of you under the sound of my voice right now have just started a business. Make sure you pray this way. If the Lord will, our business will be a success. James condemned that type of praying where we plan without submitting it to the will of God. We must be submissive to the will of God because God, remember, has things in store for you if you are faithful that are better than what you can ask or think. And if you're thinking, well, this business venture has got to go, God may have something better for you. So submit it to His will. Why do you want to cut yourself short? Pray and submit it to God's will. Didn't Jesus Christ give us the preeminent example of that? When he begged his Father in heaven in the Garden of Gethsemane to take the cup from him, the cup of the crucifixion, he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He had a will. He expressed his will. But then he said, Nevertheless, in the final analysis, all I want is thy will, O God. I come to do thy will. 
Is that the way you pray? Make sure you pray that way, submitting it to the will of God. Look at Paul in Romans chapter 1 to see if he didn't pray that way. Even if you are convinced that what you're praying for is the will of God, still submit it to God's will. He wants you acknowledging that He's in charge. He wants you acknowledging that His understanding is unsearchable and that He very well may have an idea for your life that you aren't capable of imagining. He wants you acknowledging that. So do it. Romans chapter 1, Paul said in verse 9 that He made prayer without ceasing. I make mention of you always in my prayers. Verse 10, making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Now notice, Paul says he prayed without ceasing. Was Paul persistent in prayer? Yes. Paul was persistent in prayer. What was he praying for? He was making the prayer request. Paul had a prayer request. I want to go to Rome and see the saints at Rome. But he submitted it to the will of God, by the will of God. Romans chapter 15 and verse 32 adds further, how he was submitting that request to the will of God. Now look at 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5. We are dealing with prayer. Do you want to affect the lives of your children, your children's children, their children, future generations, our nation, our church, our evangelism, your health, your prosperity? You need to learn to pray effectually. That is prayer that gets an answer. And here's one more aspect of the proper attitude for such prayer. 1 John 5:14. And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. God hears us when we ask according to His will. Now remember, James 4 said that sometimes we can ask for things to consume upon our own lusts instead of the will of God. God has revealed a number of things by example and by instruction we should pray for. I'm going to deal with that when we get to the content of prayer. Make sure you emphasize those things. Do you want to be wise? That's a good prayer request for God to give us wisdom. Is that the will of God for you to be wise? (laughs) Indeed, should you pray for wisdom? Make it a point of emphasis to pray for wisdom. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3 says, This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. Do you think you should justifiably pray that God will keep you from fornication and that He will help sanctify your practical life? I know you ought to pray for that because that is the expressed and revealed will of God. So make sure you emphasize those things in your prayer the things you know you ought to pray for. You know you ought to pray for your pastor. You know you ought to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and that is the peace of this congregation. Pray for those things. If you're praying for the request that God has already written on His prayer request list, He'll be open to considering the ones that are on your prayer request list. Do you get that point and that message? He's already designed things that He wants us to pray for. Therefore, when we add the desires of our heart, He'll be open to them. Make sure we emphasize, though, the things he considers that we ought to pray for. 
God loves a humble approach in prayer. This is the next part of the attitude of prayer. Come to the Lord in humility. Humility means coming to God in this particular case and denigrating yourself before, <clears throat> before God. Tell God you're nothing. Tell God you are not worthy to have Him hear your prayer. Tell God you're not worthy of His benefits and blessings. Look at James chapter 4 with me. James chapter 4 on this point of humility. As I have said before, I'll say again. Proper humility in prayer and proper humility before God is seeing how great the distance you can get between God and yourself. Don't try to narrow that distance and sing songs like, Put your hand in the hand of the man. Remember that from the 1970s? Put your hand in the hand of the man. You make sure you emphasize the great distance there is between God and you. That's humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. James 4 and verse 6. But he giveth more grace. Oh, God does give grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Who does God give grace to? The humble. You want grace in your life? What is grace? Unmerited, demerited favor. You want God's favor in your life? You better get humble when you come to Him in prayer. Look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. This takes the same basic expression and applies it in context to prayer. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud. Do you want God resisting your prayers? Or do you got, want God aiding your prayers and answering your prayers? I, I look at those words and I say, I don't want God against me when I'm praying. I want Him for me. I want the Spirit praying with me. And I want God answering. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore because humility is the condition for God's grace. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Notice that the prayer of casting all your care on Him is not a sentence by itself. It's included with the concept of coming humbly before God. When you pray, exalt God. One of the major components of prayer is praise. You lift God up. You put yourself down. You widen that distance between you and God, and God will lift you up. God will give you grace. God will exalt you. But if you come to God thinking you have a right to His mercies and to His favors, He'll resist you. Look at Genesis 32. Genesis 32 is the chapter where Jacob wrestled with God all night long. But I want you to see how he prayed. Did he pray humbly? Now, he was rather presumptuous when he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. But let's look at the full context. Genesis 32 and verse 10. Genesis 32, 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies 
and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. Now think about the words. I am not worthy. There is nothing in me that justifies you showing me mercies and truth. I am not worthy of the least of all thy mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. Your understanding this morning, to whatever degree that is of this book, your mercies this morning in health, in life, in eyes that work, in limbs that function, in healthy children, in financial prosperity sufficient to have a house over your head, clothes on your back, and food in your belly. The least of all those is more than you deserve. And do you pray and tell God that you're not worthy of the least of all of those mercies and of all that truth? Every degree of truth you understand this morning is something you do not deserve. And you ought to pray that way. Here's the prince of prayer right here. Jacob, I'm not worthy of the least of thy mercies, which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan. Remember, Jacob had to run away from home. Esau was going to kill him, so Jacob ran away from home, and he, all he had was a staff. And now he came back in a great band with sheep and all kinds of possessions and a great family. Four wives and twelve children is a decent family, isn't it? He wasn't worthy of the least of God's mercies, and he prayed that way. Make sure you pray that way. David said in 2 Samuel 7, you need not turn there, that after God had promised him that he was going to bless his house forever, he said, My house doesn't deserve that, O Lord. Why hast thou chosen the house of thy servant? It is not worthy for thy... 6 is the dedicatory prayer of the temple. It was quite a temple, wasn't it? Notice how Solomon describes it in relationship to God in verse 18. But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built. Solomon took seven years in building that great temple for the Lord, and yet he said when he dedicated it, how in the world can you possibly dwell in this puny little thing? You fill the heavens and the heaven of heavens. We ought to pray that way. David prayed two times in the Psalms, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Who am I to have all these blessings and to have received all these mercies? Make sure you pray humbly when you come unto God. Make sure when you pray you have the attitude that you are willing and ready to do everything you can for that prayer request. This is the next point on the proper attitude of prayer. My point is here, don't you become fatalistic in your praying. And that is, I'm simply going to wait on the Lord and not do anything. I'm going to ask God for a certain thing and wait to receive it. God isn't going to give it. God expects you to ask Him to bless you using the proper means to secure a thing. For instance, in James chapter 4, it does not say we ought to pray for gain. Just like that. It says we ought to pray 
we're going to go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain, if the Lord will. Notice, we make our plans because God's given us a brain. Did you know that? Did you Christians know that God gave you some intelligence? Now, there's a lot of people who don't know that. They sit around and pray and expect God's going to dump it in their laps. God expects you to use the brains He gave you and the means and education He's given you and go out and do something. That's, you say, no one believes so fatalistically as you're describing. How many of you know what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe about medical science? How many of you know what the Christian scientists believe about medical science? How many of you know what many charismatics believe about medical science? Now, those are three gigantic groups that exist today in America. The Jehovah's Witnesses will not undergo surgery in many cases, Christian scientists also and charismatics also, but they'll pray for God to deliver them. That is fatalism. To think that God is going to do something for you supernaturally when you could spare yourself naturally by using the means God has given. God has given us great advances in medical science. Why do you think He gave them to us? To use. Is that deep? He gave them to us to use. And we ought to use them and ask God to bless those means. Listen, when you pray at night, the Lord will protect you and your family. Do you lock the door? I hope you do, or you're asking God to send a robber because you're trying to tempt him. That's the point I'm trying to make right now. Yes, the Bible says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. But guess what that statement requires? Some builders doing some building. <laughs> but if the Lord's not with them, they're building in vain. That's the point. We do the building, but we ask God to bless the building. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. Notice, you've got to have a watchman to pray effectually. You just pray for God to bless the watchman. You pray for God to hold up your locks too at night. And you pray for God to bless your diligence in your business in order to receive prosperity. You pray for God to guide the surgeon's knife when you pray for God to save you from some physical ailment. And when the doctors say, we don't know what to do, then you beg God for supernatural intervention. Or you beg God to reveal information that that doctor may not know about, and you hit the medical library at the local public library. There are always things you can do to try to find out what God would have you to do in a given circumstance. Jesus said, ask and it shall be given you. Does that statement end with a period? No. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Don't you ask for something and think that you're going to get it without seeking and knocking. You know I describe that attitude as lazy boy Christianity. The Christian who sits down in his lazy boy and prays for God's blessing in some area of his life. That's like praying for a new job without getting out and looking for a new job. God's not going to give you a better job without looking for one. You get out and hit the streets, seeking and knocking, and I'll pray that God will give you a job, and He will. I have full confidence He will. But if you hold back on seeking and knocking because you're so supposedly trusting the Lord, God will not give you 
your petition. Because you are not doing what he said to do. He said to seek, and he said to knock. Genesis chapter 32, you need not turn there. That's Jacob wrestling with God. Did Jacob just pray for God to save him from Esau? Or did he do some working also? Do you remember what he did? First of all, he broke his company into two bands. So that if they strike one of us, the other group will survive. Now that's doing some work, right? That's planning with the intelligence God gave a man. Then he prayed. Then he lined up everything he owned in groups. And one group passed on and came to Esau and said, We're thine, and there's more following. Then another group came, We're thine, and there's more following. Now he hasn't seen Jacob yet. All he's doing is getting all these gifts. He's being overwhelmed with all these gifts, and then Jacob appears. That's intelligence. That's wisdom. That's prudence. Did God bless it? Esau fell on his neck and wept. Do you know how that happened? Prayer and work together. How's the city kept? A watchman and prayer. How's a building built? Work of laborers and prayer. Don't ever neglect one for the other. How about David defeating the council of Ahithophel? David prayed, O Lord, defeat the council of Ahithophel. Then he sent Hushai, the other counselor, to defeat the council of Ahithophel. Look at Acts chapter 1. This point to me is so important that you have the proper attitude when you pray. Don't you pray for a new job without trying to find a new job. Don't you pray for a promotion on the job without working in every way possible for that promotion. Don't you pray for God to preserve your children if you're going to be a lazy parent. You mix the very best you know with prayer for your children, and God will honor that. Look at Acts 1. Now, these are New Testament Christians. How did they go about replacing Judas? I read in verse 15, And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120, he stood up, and I'm going to paraphrase now, in the next few verses he describes what happened to Judas, and he says that of all the men, this is verse 21, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. He lays out the fact that Judas is gone. We need to replace him to fulfill Bible prophecy. And here are the qualifications of the men we need to choose from. Then they pray. And then they give forth lots in verse 26, and Matthias is chosen. Notice the work, the preparation, then the prayer, Lord, you reveal, based on another method of casting lots. You say, well, we don't cast lots. Do you want me to cast dice for a job? If you pursue two jobs, now listen to this. You may be shocked. If you pursue two jobs, and you're looking for another job, or you're unemployed and you're looking for a job, and you pursue two jobs and you approach them and measure them with a multitude of counselors by all the instruction of wisdom the Word of God's given you, and you can't choose between the two of them, go ahead and cast a dice. A die. Sure, go ahead and do it. Not a thing wrong with that, as long as that is reserved for where you have exhausted everything you can do naturally. Now, what I generally do, and I've been in that situation before, 
interviewing with several companies, and Lord, which job would you have me to take? I just pray God. I don't know which one. I like them both. God, you just shut the doors. So I pursue them both and see which one slams shut first or which one takes me first and pray that way. But you're always working. You only rely on God to intervene supernaturally when you have exhausted all natural means to solving the decision yourself. How many ex do I need to give you more examples? I went, to I went to Bob Jones University for a year. I've told you this example. I remember guys coming into prayer group and asking us to pray for them to have a passing grade on their test the next day. When I knew and everyone else knew, they had not studied for that test. That is a mockery of prayer. You study as diligently as you can within reason and then trust God to bless that effort. Now, I've made a statement before, and I want to say it again, and then let's analyze it. I have said, work as if everything depended upon you and pray as if everything depended upon God. Now, I mean that in a relative sense, but there is a limitation. You only work within reason for those things because Psalm 127 and verse 2 tells us that it is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Do you know what that means? It's You're not to work as if everything depended upon you. You are to work within a reasonable limit and then trust God for the, bless, the rest. So I'm modifying that statement, and Psalm 127 and verse 2 is powerful. You know, I preached on Bible economics and how you can get ahead financially following this book right here. But you're only to do those things within reason. It is vain for you to rise up early. You know, I preach working a number of hours a week, but there comes a point where you stay in bed. It's vain for you to rise up early, to stay up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. God has ordained sleep for his children. Everything is not dependent upon you. You do your best within reasonable limits and trust him for the rest. If you've got a financial debt and you're praying for God to get you out of debt, then you better be making every effort on your part to reduce your expenses. Don't pray for God to get rid of your debt while you keep, while you keep living like a spendthrift. That's the point I'm making. Don't pray for God to help you with your weight situation unless you're doing everything you can to lose weight. God sees the end from the beginning. When you pray, God knows you have prayed. God knew you were going to pray before you prayed. God knew you were going to pray before the foundation of the world when he determined what he was going to bless you with. Don't be a fatalist. How many of you have ever prayed for your child to have two arms, two legs, two eyes that function, ears, and be able to speak after the child was conceived. I assume we all have. Well, now God already has his members written in a book, doesn't he? Do you think you can change God's book by your prayer? Do you think your prayers can have an effect on what was written in that book? They did have an effect. Don't be a fatalist and think, that you can't do things through prayer. I'll raise the example again. There was a sister in this congregation that asked us to pray. She asked whether she should pray for the sex of her child. 
she had conceived. Should I pray that it be a boy or a girl? They wanted a boy. You know who it was. I think I've told the whole congregation. They had three girls. Now you know. <laughs> I'm giving that example because to me it is a beautiful example of guarding against fatalism in prayer. Now, had the sex been determined? Absolutely. Hannah prayed for a boy. She didn't want a girl. Hannah didn't want a girl. Nothing wrong with praying for a certain sex. But the sex has already been determined. Do you go ahead and pray for it after conception? Just as much as you'd pray for it before conception. Not a thing has changed, has it? I mean, is anything, do you think it's more, the sex is more sure after conception than before? Given God's absolute determination of all things? Sure you pray for it because God, when He determined the sex of that child, saw whether prayers were offered for a boy or a girl. Yes, you pray. Everything in our lives has been determined as much as the sex of that child after it was conceived. If we believe any differently than that, prayer is a useless and vain effort, is it not? If God has determined all things that come to pass? He has but He's determined those things based on His foreknowledge of what we do. So pray. So pray. We all pray for our children while they're in the womb, but their members have already been determined. You pray for two legs. God's already determined two legs if you've prayed for that. Oh, guard against this fatalistic attitude in prayer. Does prayer change things? No, from God's perspective. Yes from our perspective, and those perspectives are in infinitely apart from each other. All we see is what happens here in time. God has it all stretched out before Him, and He sees the beginning from the end. Brethren, if you ever pray for something, and you don't use the natural means you have to get that thing, you are tempting God. Remember Luke 4 and verse 4. In Luke, Luke chapter 4, not verse 4, but it's verse 12. In Luke chapter 4, the devil took Jesus Christ to the pinnacle of the temple. And the devil quoted Scripture to Jesus Christ. He quoted a promise of Scripture to Jesus Christ. He said, doesn't the Word of God say that if you, you'll cast yourself down, that God's angels will bear you up and keep you from dashing your feet against this pavement down there? Go ahead. Cast yourself down. What was the devil doing? He was taking a promise of God. He quoted it accurately. Where was the error in what the devil was doing? He was asking Christ to presume on a promise of God, which is to tempt God. That's why Christ came back and said, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Taking a promise of God and presuming on it without using natural means is to tempt God. Jesus didn't have to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. He could go down the fire escape. He could get down any number of other ways other than throw himself off and presume on that salvation promised in Psalm 90. One. That's the point I'm trying to make. You've got to pray with faith. Brethren, when you pray, you better believe you're going to receive it. That's the only way to get your petitions. Matthew 21 and 22 says, When you pray, believing ye shall receive. James chapter 1 tells us that if we waver in our faith, let not that man think that he shall receive anything 
of the Lord. And you know how far I've pressed that faith. Do you believe God is able to do better than what you can ask or think? Do you believe you are subject to like passions as Elijah? Do you believe you're capable of praying effectually as Elijah did? If you waver, you'll not receive your petitions. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8, he said, lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Don't lift up your hands with doubting. You're not going to receive the petitions you ask for. We must pray without doubts. And if you need help, then you need to go read the Old Testament again. Read about Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis 32. Read about the other illustrations of God answering prayer. It'll build your faith. <clears throat> faith in Hebrews 11.6 is believing that God is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. I believe that most of you believe He is. How many of you believe He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him? There is effectual praying. There is the proper attitude of faith. I believe not only that God exists at this very moment, but that He rewards those that will diligently seek Him. I know it. I know that even in the 20th century, though this world tries to deny the existence of God, God does still reward. Look at Philippians chapter 4. You need to learn to pray with a carefree attitude. If you pray and then get up from your prayer and worry, you're not praying the way God wants you to pray. I call this the carefree life. God has ordained for all of His people to live a carefree life. And those words are music to my ears. Philippians 4 and verse 6, this is a command, not a suggestion. Be careful for nothing. That word careful means be anxious. Be worrisome for nothing. Don't be anxious for anything. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. How should you pray? Without care. Listen, cast, what does the Bible say? Casting all your care. What does care mean? Worry, fretting, anxiety. Cast it all upon Him, for He... What does care mean? Worries, frets, is anxious for you. Casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Be careful for nothing. When you pray, faith and this attitude of carelessness, carelessness, means that you're not going to worry about those things. You're going to put them all in God's hands and leave them. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 34, Take no thought for the morrow. The morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Are you able to do that? The proper attitude of prayer. What is the proper attitude of prayer? Delight in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. The fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Fervency. Come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain help in time of need. Pray with great persistence, importunity. Bother God until He gives you your petition. That's what the word means. Pray with the understanding. Pray not to be seen of men, but be, to be seen in secret of your Father in heaven. Pray with a submission to God's will 
that though you may be praying for something specifically, God may have something better, and you'll be open to that if He wants to give that. Pray for the will of God. Pray for those things that God's already told you is His will for your life. Pray with a humble approach. Exalt God. He'll lift you up and exalt you if you'll humble yourself under His mighty hand. Pray with a willing attitude to do everything you can within reason to get those petitions yourselves. Pray with faith and don't you waver. Don't be like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Pray without doubting and pray with a carefree attitude of confidence and trust in God. He cares for me. He's more worried about tomorrow than I ought to be. Cast all your care upon Him. Be careful for nothing. And if you'll do it, the peace that passeth understanding, able to do, exceeding abundantly above what you can ask or think. Understanding is what you can think. God will give you a peace that passes it all. If you'll cast your care upon Him, pray fervently, give your supplications and petitions to God with thanksgiving, and say He's a merciful and great Heavenly Father. He can take care of me. He can care for me. I'm not going to care about it. I'm going to cast it all upon Him. And God will give you the petitions for which you ask. May God bless the preaching of His Word this Lord's Day.